and there's lots more. That's not, it does tie into the message because what I want to talk to you this morning in Hebrews chapter 3 are warning signs that are ahead, warning signs that are ahead. And aren't you glad that God doesn't give you humorous or cute little sayings to try to warn you about things in life? Uh, it's not like the church billboard. If you had a church billboard out here, I promise you, it wouldn't be a cute sign like that. It'd be a Bible verse. Uh, and a Bible verse would have power with it, not because of me, because the book is powerful. And it'll make an impact. Uh, he says there in the book of Isaiah that God's word will not return back to him void or meaningless. It'll accomplish the purpose in which it's sent out to do. And, uh, but it's, it's, it is humorous. But those are not the warning signs that, that God gives and, uh, and speaks about. But Hebrews chapter 3, look down with me at verse, uh, verse 7. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith today, if you will hear his voice, Harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Now you'll notice in verse 7, there's a parenthesis that starts there. It ends in verse 11. So let's do this. Let's back up to verse 7. Read the first word and skip down into verse 12. Explain that here in a minute. Verse 7, wherefore, verse 12, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, Harden not your hearts as in the provocation, for some, when they had heard, did provoke. Howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses, but with whom he was grieved forty years. Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? To whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. I want you to notice in verse 19, there's the key problem. It's unbelief. You'll back up in the passage in verse 7. Uh, down to verse 13 is really what we're focusing on this morning. And uh, we left off on a study uh, of Hebrews chapter 6, verse 3. And, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 6 and verse 14. We're not getting into that today, but keep in mind that's a doctrinal context. But what the author of Hebrews is doing in chapter 3, he's gotten to the place and says, now we've got our high priest and the apostle, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's presented to them in chapter 3 is that, that you had Moses as the nation of Israel, that's who he's writing to in the book of Hebrews. He said, we've got Moses, the father of the nation in some respect. And he says, we all revere him. But better than Moses is Jesus Christ. Now, to the Jew, this is kind of a, a breathtaker. Like, what did he just say? Uh, why did he say that? Obviously, as a Christian, on this side of Calvary, as a Gentile, we're looking at going, what's the big problem? But to the nation of Israel, uh, that's a gut punch when you tell them that Jesus is better than Moses because you have revered and exalted Moses uh, throughout all of history. And we're not saying that Moses, nor the author, is saying that Moses is bad. It's saying he's good, he was faithful in all his house, but even better than Moses is Jesus Christ. Keep in mind, the book of Hebrews is about that very subject, is taking a subject matter that in the book of Hebrews it applies to them, whether it's the tabernacle or angels or the spoken word of God. And he says that we've had all of these things as Jews, but better than all of that is Jesus. So by the end of the book of Hebrews, what you will know, and again, I tell you, I'll, I'll, I'll ram it into your head and you will remember this, is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. 
And so that's what is the context of this passage. But what he does in verse 7 is he begins to, to take a side note. He goes, okay, now Jesus is better than Moses. But he said, let me remind you of something. He said, Moses was faithful in all his house, but Moses was a part of the house, the house of Israel. But Jesus started the house. And he says that the nation of Israel hardened their hearts against God, and they ignored the warning signs. And so what he does in verse 7, when he starts the parentheses down to verse, uh, verse 11, is he gives you the warning signs. And that's what I want to talk to you this morning about is the, the warning signs uh, that are ahead. Obviously, Moses stayed faithful. Obviously, that is exactly what the writer of Hebrews wants any Christian to do, is to stay faithful and steadfast. But when we begin to drift or we begin to fade away from that which is right, God will give us warning signs. He goes through these warning signs and he references those things dealing with this time of provocation, which means that they provoked God. He references it there in verse 7 and 8, and he talks about there that they provoked God in the wilderness. Do you remember the story? Moses leads them out of, uh, out, of, out of Egypt, and he gets the commandments, and he, he has all of these things. He says, here, we're gonna, this is what God wants us to do. And the nation of Israel begins to go in a tailspin. And they begin to provoke God, and they provoked him to the point where God said, you will not enter the promised land. You will wander in, around in that wilderness for 40 years. And so what the author of Hebrews does is he takes you back to that story in verses 7 to 11 right there in Hebrews chapter 3. So obviously there's a lot of history that could be looked at. We won't look at all of that this morning, but take your Bibles with me and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll make our way to Psalms here in just a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul, when he writes to the Corinthian church, a Gentile church, he references the very subject of the nation of Israel wandering in the wilderness. You'll notice in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, he references Moses in verse 2, the cloud and the sea that's passing through the Red Sea. In verse 3, he talks about the same spiritual meat in which they ate. That was referring to manna. He refers in verse 4, the spiritual drink, the rock. That was the, the story of Moses striking the rock and it producing water for the nation of Israel. Look at verse 5, but with many of them God was not well pleased. That's what the author of Hebrews said. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 6, now these things were our examples to the intent. Here's the purpose that God wrote those down for you. See, you know, God didn't write everything down in all of history for you. But he specifically looked back at history and grabbed certain stories and said, now you need this. I'm talking about you today. He gave you these stories with the intent, and here's what he tells you in verse 6, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So in this story of the wilderness, we will find a story where the nation of Israel lusted to have something that they weren't allowed to have. In verse 7, neither be ye idolaters. In verse 8, he talks about fornication. In verse 9, temptation. In verse 10, he talks about murmuring. Look at verse 11, now all these things happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Paul takes the stories of the, the subject of the book of Numbers and the wandering around in the wilderness. He looks to the Christian and says, now God wrote these things down for you so that you might learn and admonish you, exalt you to follow Christ and not fall down, not fall in the same temptations that they fell to in the wilderness. Here we go. God says, pay attention to their warning signs. 
Watch for their signs. If these signs begin to, uh, to show up in your life, then you need to take heed. Now, obviously, you could look at the nation of Israel and see that God blessed them. I mean, the blessings of God were every day to the nation of Israel in the wilderness. He actually references it right there, as we said in verse 3, where he gave them spiritual meat. He gave them manna, angel food. I think it was probably ice cream. It describes it as white, and it melted. It had to be. Wouldn't that be great? Ice cream every day of your life. You could save it on Friday, and it'd last all day Saturday. It wouldn't melt. You say, was it ice cream? No, it wasn't. It was a, some type of bread of a wafer that came down from heaven. And you say, you believe that? Sure do. And uh, God said he provided for them. And they provided in the wilderness every day. I mean, the blessings of God every day. You know, there's no different in your life. God's blessings in your life are every day. You say, well, I don't see it. Well, that's your problem. You're not seeing it because God blesses you and me every day of our lives. And especially as a child of God. Take your Bibles and look at Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is where uh, the book of Hebrews quotes. He quotes Psalm 95 in verse 7 to 11 right here. And it's, it would be interesting to note this. We do not know who the author is of the song, being Psalm 95. It does not tell us uh, in its context of saying it's Psalm of David or Asaph or whoever it may have been. We don't know. Uh, but we do know that in the Hebrews chapter 3, it says there, it, it references, thus saith the Holy Ghost. The, the Holy Spirit of God wrote this. He inspired it. And so we, we're going to look at it. Psalm 95 and verse 7. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation, as in the day of the temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work. Forty years long was I grieved with this generation and said, it is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. You could look at verse 10 and say, that's a long suffering of God, that God would put up with his child, his children, the nation of Israel, for 40 years tempting and provoking God. God says, you just push, me, you push my button every day. Some of you, some of you growing up, we push the button of your parents. How dare you? So, so you're, you were bad. And uh, we, we, knew, we knew which buttons to push with mom and dad, didn't we? We knew it would get them all riled up. And uh, God says, you're just like that kid that keeps pushing my buttons. He said, I put up with you for 40 years in the wilderness. It's long-suffering of God. And God still blessed them every day. Notice in the passage, he continues on, and he says, uh, in verse 11, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. God says, because of that, because you provoked me and you didn't heed my warnings, you will not, Israel, walk into the promised land. And then I would just see another passage in Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14. There was a lot of stories. If you ever read through the book of Numbers, uh, I know there's there's a part of numbers which we, we will be honest is is kind of boring. You get into so and so begot so and so kind of an idea, listing all these people and and uh, by name, but yet then you get into some stories that he tells you. He begins to tell you stories of of the problems of the nation of Israel and which they had. And uh, Numbers chapter fourteen. Look what he says in uh, verse verse twenty. And the Lord said, "I have pardoned according to thy word." But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, because of all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness. In other words, all the blessings, all the works of God. He said, you saw it and have tempted me now these, look here, ten times. Ten times. 
I thought there were more than 10. At least as far as I could see, uh, there's a lot more than 10 problems that they created. So I don't know. I'm not questioning the 10 because God says, you tempted me 10 times. Maybe some of those problems were not temptations towards God. And temptation towards God is not saying that God is tempted to do evil or wrong, that you're tempting God to make a judgment call is what you're doing. In other words, you're not heeding to this warning, and they keep doing what they're not supposed to do. And God says, if you, you better stop. You're tempting me. You're challenging me to make a decision of judgment. So what could these ten things be? Jews, as far as looking at the, the story of the, the wilderness, wondering, throughout history, they've listed ten items that they say are the, they feel are the ten areas of temptation. We could disagree a little bit, I, that's, that's fine, but I want to kind of show you some of the problems. Look at chapter uh, 14 of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 14. So we're going to back up into Exodus, and Exodus chapter 14. I'm just going to give you some highlights of these 10 areas, these 10 times as they came out of Egypt that they begin to tempt the God and say, uh, are you going to do something to us? Uh, we're doing wrong, but are you going to stop us? Are you going to stop us? Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14, look at verse 11, Exodus 14, 11. And they said unto Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Israel was afraid that God had brought them out to the wilderness to die. You brought us out here, just kill us. Were there not graves in, in Egypt you could bury us in? You had to bring us all the way out in the wilderness to kill us all and bury us here. And listen, you know that God didn't bring them out of Egypt to, to kill them all. If he wanted to kill them all, he was real creative in Egypt. He could have done it. You understand that God brought them out of G Egypt to do a great work for the nation of Israel. We hindsight, we look at that and see that's exactly what he's going to do. But at the time, they didn't see it. And they tempt God. They tempt God. And say, what'd you do? Bring us out here. Why'd you do this, God? This makes no sense. Why? You want me to die like this? Aren't you glad we don't say stuff like that? You do remember that Paul said, I've written these things down to admonish you, to teach you about your own Christian life. Maybe there is somebody here that's done that one time. Maybe we have said that. Maybe we've said, God, why? Did you bring me this far in my Christian life just to kill me? And never answer any of the prayers and promises that you've said you'd give to me? You're just going to make me a show, aren't you? You're there in Exodus 14. Go to chapter 15. Chapter 15. Look down at verse 24. Exodus 15, 24. And the people murmured against Moses saying, what shall we drink? You know what murmuring is. You, you know what it is. That's the individual that walks away from you, and as they're walking away, and you said, what did you say? Oh, nothing. I didn't say nothing. No, but your body language tells me that you're not happy. <laughs> your body language says that you don't like the decision or the choice that I made, and you begin to murmur under your breath and say, well, if I was the parent in this house, I wouldn't do it that way. And when I said that, some of you adults going, yeah, hit the teenagers. No, I'm talking about you when you were a teenager. That's what you said. We always had it figured out what mom and dad should do because we were smarter than them. 
Just like our kids and just like us, we murmur against the authorities and we gripe and complain. It's under our breath and that's murmuring. And God says, what'd you say? And Israel murmurs against God. What was the passage in chapter 15, verse 24? You brought us out here and we don't have anything to drink. There's no water. You're just going to let us all die. And they begin to murmur against God. Could God provide water in a place where it appears no water? Sure he can. Did God bring them out of Egypt to bring them to the desert in the wilderness just to die of thirst? No. But they murmured against God. They murmured. Look at chapter 16. In chapter 16, verse 2, And the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we uh, sat by the flesh pots, and when we did eat bread to the full. For ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill these whose whole assembly with hunger. Now they're murmuring and complaining because we have no food and we have no water. They murmur again. Again, tradition just says that these are the ten areas in which they begin to tempt God. They begin to murmur and to complain. They begin to to be afraid of what maybe God could do or didn't do. Chapter 16, look at verse 19. This is your fourth area. Verse 19, and Moses said, let no man leave of it till the morning. Notwithstanding, they hearkened not unto Moses, but some of them left of it until the morning, and it bred worms and stank, talking about the manna. And Moses was wroth with them. So there in the passage, uh, you could look, look at this and say, they began to disobey God with the instructions with the manna. God said, this is what you're going to do. Here's your rules. And they disobey him. You ever had somebody disobey you? You say, I, 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 did, I told you not to do that. We were laughing here in the church. There was a, there was a little pin, and Brother Andrew says, you need to put a sign right there. It says, do not touch this button. It was like a push pin. Because you know what it would happen? push it. It's kind of like if I, hit, if I put a sign up on those red doors and said, do not touch wet paint. There will be somebody. It's not wet. You just, you just, just because you were told not to, it's just something that rises and says, I want to do that. Isn't that our nature? It is. It's our nature. It's our nature to disobey. And, and the nation of Israel was instructed, this is what you're not to do with the manna. You're to collect it in this manner and, and don't keep it to the next day. I'll provide for you again. And they disobeyed God. Why are you pushing his buttons? He told you not to do that. Look at verse 27 of the same chapter. And it came to pass that there went out some of the people on the seventh day, the Sabbath, for to gather, and they found none. And the Lord said unto Moses, how long refuse you to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for that the Lord hath given you the, uh, the Sabbath. You know what they're doing? They're violating a holy day that God said for the nation of Israel. It's not Gentile. I understand that. It's for the nation of Israel. Here's the Sabbath day, and you're to keep it holy. You're not doing any work. He said, I'll, I'll take the manna which you collected from the day before. It'll last a whole day, and you don't have to go out and collect it. And you know what they did? They didn't keep the Sabbath day. So they began to disobey the laws concerning or instructions with the manna, and then they began to disobey the Sabbath day. These are the very areas that God says, why are you pushing my buttons? Listen, I'm not worried about any of us today that's not keeping the Sabbath day. 
I'm not worried about you, that, that you're not collecting your manna the way that you should and keeping a day longer. But I think the principle is there. I think it's obvious because that's what the Apostle Paul says, that with these instructions, you better take heed as well. It was the very subject of 1 Corinthians 10 and in Romans chapter 14 and in Hebrews chapter 3. He said, why do you tempt God? Well, it doesn't stop there. Now we go to number six. Go with me to, uh, I'll tell you what, while you're, you're in the book of Exodus, kind of save us a trip, but in verse, the number seven is Exodus 32. You don't have to necessarily look at that, but in Exodus 32 is where Moses is coming down off the mount a second time there, or sorry, the first time. When he comes down, Aaron, the high priest, his brother, has gotten the nation of Israel to take their gold, throw it into the fire, and poof, it turned into a golden calf. Remember this? The people made me do it. Right? We threw it in, all of a sudden, well, the subject in Exodus chapter 32 is that it became idolatry. Again, I'm not, I don't think this morning that you and I are tempted to take all of our gold rings and necklaces and bracelets, throw it into fire and make a golden calf and bow down and worship it. It's probably, that, is, that in itself is no temptation to us. But we are prone to the same thing, to exalt something above God and give it more importance and more time than he himself. And that's what idolatry is. It is to put something or someone above God. You say, well, I don't do that. Well, you're quick to read the news before you read the Bible. You check social media status before you ever opened his book. So I, I'd be careful to say what we don't do. We do have a tendency to, to indulge ourselves in sports before we give time to God. A child of God. You are a child of God. If you are a child of God, should not God be the very main importance of all of your life? Should be. He should be the very one that gains your attention from the moment of waking to the time that you go to sleep at night. And if we're not careful, we take the things of the world and we give them more importance than God. And they become our golden calves. That's what they become. So that was number seven. Let's go back to number six. That takes us to the book of Numbers in chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20. Again, the book of Numbers is kind of this centrally located as far as the wilderness, but, but Exodus uh, began to lead us out of the, the land of Egypt, and they're beginning to wander around, and they begin to push the button of God, and they ignore the warning signs. And what, what we're seeing is in these temptations, these are the signs that God said, slow down, stop. What are you doing? What are you doing? In Numbers chapter 20, look at verse 3. And the people chode with Moses and spake, saying, Would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord? What it is here in chapter 20, verse 3, would be number 6, based on its timeline, they begin to chide with Moses. What that means is they begin to argue and they begin to blame somebody else. I'm not, I'm not afraid of you this morning blaming Moses. And maybe you don't even blame the preacher or the one ahead of you. But here's what we do. We tend to take the responsibility and push it away from us and blame somebody else for the problems that we created. Well, it wouldn't have happened if they would have done this. And if they would just do that right there, then everything would be all right. Well, what about you? Why does it always shift the blame to somebody else? That's what Israel does. Just shift the blame. 
and argue and blame somebody else for the choices and the problems they created. And God says, why are you pushing my buttons? Why are you tempting me to have to judge you? Look at Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. It was years ago, um, preached a series of, 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 of messages of uh, how to bust up a church. But I applied it how you could bust up a family and a home, too. I mean, I just taught you how to do it. You want to bust up the family? You want to bust up a church? The Bible lays it out. You see, what do I got to do? Well, start murmuring. Start complaining. That, that, that starts, that lays the groundwork. It's a great ground. You want to bust up a church, just start complaining. And uh, watch this. Numbers chapter 11, verse 1, and when the people complained, complaints. My boy's got a, ch a chuckle out of it. We went to a store a couple of weeks ago and it had the grenade. Some of you have seen this. And it's got a little, a little stand. It says the complaint department. And it's got the, the pin. And it says, you know, choose, pick a number, you know. And it's a hand grenade. And you pull it, you know. I thought that was funny. Of course, we've seen it before. But people like to complain. He said, the children of Israel began to complain. It displeased the Lord. And the Lord heard it. And his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. And the people cried unto Moses. And when Moses prayed unto the Lord, the fire was quenched. And he called the name of the place Tabret, which because the fire of the Lord burned among them. And so in that passage right there, they just began to complain. There's, you ever been around a person that all they, they, there's nothing ever happy. There's nothing positive. It's always negative. I mean, the room's not comfortable. It's too hot. It's too cold. The seat's not comfortable. The car doesn't work right. And you just want to look at them and say, is there anything good in your whole life at all? <laughs> because all I hear from you is complaint after complaint after complaint. And you know what? It gets to the point where I don't want to be around you. Because I'm just tired of hearing negative all the time. You see, there, are there people like that? Yeah. And, and I can see their face right now in my own mind. <laughs> And I, I don't want to be around them because they just, they just suck the life out of anybody that's in the room because they just complain. Aren't you glad we never complain? Aren't you glad that you never have a complaining spirit? You're always happy, always joyful with everything in life. We're not. And we'll do the same thing. We'll just complain. I said, we. <laughs> I'm preaching at me today as well. Is that... Why can't we just be content with the things that God's given us and the places of life? Why are we always wanting more? You know, sometimes the, the best answer or answers to prayer were unanswered prayers. And those things you thought you had to have or places you thought you had to go, and when it didn't happen, you look back five, ten years ago, and you think, God, I am so thankful that you didn't answer that. And I'm sorry for complaining. nation of Israel begins to complain, and God says, I don't like it. I don't like it. You notice in verse 4, it talks about lusting there. They're wanting something that they didn't have. But you're in chapter 11. Look down at verse 32. This is number 9. The people stood up all that day and all that night and all the next day. And when they gathered the quails, he that gathered least gathered ten homers. And they spread them all abroad for themselves around about the camp. 
And while the flesh was yet between their teeth, ere it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord smote the people with a very great plague. You remember the story? They, they were complaining and said, God, we've got to eat manna every day of our life. Can we not have some meat? You know, we're Southerners, right? We want meat and potato kind of thing. God goes, no problem. I'll give you some meat. And God gives them quail. You'll study the passage out. Uh, they had more quail than they knew what to do with. And if you've ever looked at a quail, there's not a lot of meat on a quail. <laughs> and God says, it'll come out your nostrils. I think it, it, he wasn't just being figurative. I think they ate until they were sick. God says, is that what you want? Well, there you go. You better be careful what you ask for. He might just give it to you, especially when your attitude's not right, and you're just pushing his button because you're not happy, and you think that that thing's going to sit. Listen, it's not about quail, because we could relabel all the things in your life and my life, and God could say, that's a quail, and that's another one, and you weren't content with what you had, and you always wanted more. Fine, I'll give it to you, and you gave you the limit of a car. And he, and he gave you the house that, that you so thought would make you the, the, the best on the block. And then you didn't come to find out the foundation was a problem and the roof was leaking. And it didn't quite go as you planned, did it? But we just thought we had to have the quail. We thought that that wouldn't, why? We were lusting after something we didn't have. Go to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14. In Numbers chapter 14, the, the, just the whole passage is dealing with the nation of Israel. And what they do is they send in spies into the promised land. There's two guys that come back of the, of the 12, and that was Joshua and Caleb. And Joshua and Caleb, if you remember the story, they said, we can, we can do it. Uh, yeah, we, we acknowledge that there were giants and they were all uh, so big that we were like grasshoppers in their sight. But by God's grace and faith in God, that land is supposed to be ours. And we can do it. If you remember the story, they, the nation of Israel didn't believe Joshua and Caleb. They believed the majority and said, no way. No, we can't do it. Can't go in the promised land. Why? Because, well, the report led to unbelief. They just couldn't believe that God could do something so great. This is the same group of people that months prior had seen God part a Red Sea and walk on dry ground. The waters were congealed. This is the same group of people that saw two million people cross across that sea to turn around and watch Pharaoh's army drown out the enemies of God. This is the very people that had seen uh, the plagues in Egypt and, and God uh, show his power and his might. That he could, could do certain works to one group of people on one side of the Egyptian side of the line and then not do certain things here and, and answer all sorts of prayers just so let my people go. These are the same individuals that had seen God provide their food with manna in the wilderness every day of their life and on the Sabbath day it held over. We could keep going back through the, the stories because there's more stories of problems in the book of, uh, of Numbers. There is the, 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 the fiery serpents that begin to bite the nation of Israel and they make the brazen serpent. And if you look and live, you look to the brazen serpent, you'll live. And they saw that take place. 
they saw a whole plague stayed in one day. And time after time, they saw the miracles and the works of God. And then these men come back and say, two guys says, we can do it with God's help. And ten said, no, we can't. And the nation of Israel believed. Really, they had unbelief towards God and believed what they couldn't do. In Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 19, the very last verse of that chapter, he said, there's a warning. And this warning is that you better be careful because of unbelief. Unbelief. I want you to take note. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. We obviously this morning went through a synopsis of the book of Numbers and Exodus as they came out and wandered in the wilderness. And because of their unbelief, God says, you will wander in that wilderness for 40 years. But Joshua and Caleb will go in because they believe me. It is that story that the author of Hebrews writes and describes for us in verse 7 to verse 11. But I want you to see verse 19. So we see that they could not enter into this promised land in because of unbelief. I want you to take note, make, write this down. There's two ways that unbelief will manifest itself in your life. Two ways. First way, number one, is presumption. You will presume against God. You will presumption. In other words, you say, well, I know God will provide it, but I'm going to go get a loan to make sure it happens. I'm going to go buy it myself to make sure that it happens. That's presumptuous. So unbelief, it manifests itself with presumption. And number two, it'll manifest. And here's its opposite extreme. It's polar opposites. Unbelief will manifest itself in presumption. And then it'll manifest itself in distrust. And both are unbelief. But one appears Because it's easy to say, look at the blessings of God on my life, but you're paying the bank. You're, you're, and I'm not, I'm not saying that being critical of debt, but how many times have we jumped into something that God says, that's not what I had planned for you. You made the move. You made the action. You made the purchase. I didn't do it. I was, I believe I firmly believe that we'll get to heaven and realize that some of the blessings of God that we missed out were within seconds and in days. And God says, the next day I was getting ready to bless you with this, but you went and bought your own. And that's why you had the problem with that car. And that's why you had the problem with this. Because we didn't wait on him. And there's sometimes we miss the blessings because we just said, God, you can't do it. There's just no way. I don't see how it could work. I don't have the money. I don't have the time. I don't have the contacts. I don't know the people. There's no possible way. And we gave up all hope. Unbelief. He said the children of Israel did not go in because of unbelief. Now, back up to verse 7. He said, as the Holy Ghost saith, and he quoted Psalm 95, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. So if unbelief is something that I'm to be warned about and you're to be warned about, and I know we're not Hebrews, but, here's the, but isn't your life to be lived by faith? And without faith, it is impossible to what? To please God. 
then that would mean that there are times in my life and in yours that I have had unbelief. I have presumed upon God or I distrusted what he told me he would do. For this reason, this is why I tell you, write down, uh, make notes when God speaks to you in that book and God says, this is what I'm going to do for you. Make a note of it because there'll come a day that you say, woe is me. And you begin to murmur and complain because you see it the way you see it. It hasn't worked out for good. And you can turn back to his word and say, God, I don't know how you're going to do it, but you said right here, this is what you do. So, what are the warning signs? Obviously, we could take those 10 things and could break them down and we could look at lust and murmuring and complainings. And these are all signs that, that are in our lives that we need to pay attention to. But in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 7, number 1 is hear God's voice. Look in verse, uh, verse 7. He said, today, if you will hear his voice. Now, what is the byproduct? If you hear God's voice, it will soften you. It'll soften me. Because if we don't hear his voice in verse 8, he says, harden not your hearts. So if I don't listen to him, my heart becomes hardened and cold to the things of God. And if you didn't listen to his word, then your, your heart becomes hardened to the things of God. That's why I think in churches... All across this country today, that a minister could stand up and read the Word of God, and it doesn't phase the people that they listen to him. Why? Because their hearts are hardened. What we tend to do is we tend to look to somebody, but man, that was a great sermon. I wish they had been here. I wish they were. I hope they're paying attention this morning because that's exactly what they needed. No, you needed it. You need it. And when you open that word, God should speak to you. And a, and a result of God speaking to us is our hearts soften. When we begin to see the warning signs that begin to transpire in our lives, listen for God's word. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 17, the subject in that passage is dealing with salvation and the doctrine of the gospel. The death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ. And in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says there that in verse 17, he said, that truth, that gospel that you believed with your heart. And then he goes on to say that basically, in other words, it, it softened you because you were hard. He didn't use those terms, but that's the idea that he leaves you is that, that even the gospel softens an individual. Can't tell me times I've dealt with individuals and, and you ask them about salvation, you talk to them about heaven or hell, and I'm good, preacher. I'm good. And you begin to get this conversation going, and I'm not saying being offensive. I'm just saying you're talking about the Bible, what Christ did, and something on the inside begins to soften. Begins to soften. I remember one guy one time, he, uh, I'd gone to some, we were at somebody else's house, and um, he was the first time I'd ever met him. The family we were there was a member of the church. They were saved. But this guy, I'm not sure. And, and I got a conversation started. Never met him. Uh, met him a few times after that. And, and I began to just talk to him. I don't remember how he got on to salvation. And in this, it was one of those conversations, if you've ever been like this, that the Holy Spirit just starts giving these words. And I was trying to give him an illustration of um, 
of life and to make this simple of salvation. And, and however I was doing it, I said, it'd be, for example, if somebody called you and I, and I named a name, I just made up a name, if they called you this. I don't, I, to this day, I don't remember what the illustration was. And when I said it, his jaw hits the floor and, and he says, how'd you know that was my nickname? Now, if I told you the nickname, you, it would be nothing like you would ever call anybody, okay? I was just using it for illustration in my preaching. He goes, do you know me? I said, I don't know you. I've never met you a day in my life. He goes, that was what they called me in all of high school. I had no clue. I just threw something out. And uh, so we kept on going with salvation. Now I've, now I've perked his interest. And um, so I'm, I'm telling about salvation, what Christ has done. And then I just, again, I just kind of pull out this illustration out of the hat. I just said, I said, for example, I said, I have no idea. I said, but God knows what you did five years ago to this day. And he went, he got white. He goes, you know what I did? Brother, I don't know. I don't want to know. <laughs> I said, but I know this. If you'll put your trust in Jesus Christ, in the subject of salvation, he'll forgive that. And if you bring that up to him and said, God, do you remember what I did five years ago? God says, I have no remembrance. I have no idea what you're talking about. And he basically stopped in his verbal tracks and said, you mean if I trust Christ, everything is forgiven in the past? Yes. Everything is forgiven in the past. You see, what happened that day? I'll tell you what happened. As the word of God was coming at him, his heart softened. His heart softened. You see, yeah, preacher, that was a lost person. And it'll do the same thing to a saved person. It's his word will soften us. But you better hear his voice. You say, well, I go to church. But do you read your Bible? You do believe it's his word, right? Do you believe it's God's words written down for mankind? If that's the case, then why would you not read it? Let me give you, give you a warning. Take heed that your heart not be hardened. You better hear his words. Notice in verse 10, he, there he says, Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart. You see, the, number two is sin begins in the heart. That's where it begins. It's a heart matter. When we begin to doubt God, we begin to err. When we begin to act apart and do our own actions, we do err. The hymn writer wrote, Nearer my God to thee, though like the wanderer, the sun gone down, darkness be over me, my rest a stone. Yet in my dreams I'd be nearer my God to thee. Is there not something that stirred within you that would like to be nearer to God? Nearer to God to thee. It's a heart matter. It is where unbelief starts. It does not start in the mind. It starts in the heart. And in verse 12, he says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. You see, number three is that unbelief is the departure from the God of heaven. Unbelief is the departure from God. I don't mean that you lost your salvation. Because if really, if it's everlasting life, how could you lose it? If you lost it, it wasn't everlasting. I'm not talking about losing salvation. I don't believe you can. But obviously, you can have unbelief towards God as a Christian. And those children of Israel did not enter in because of their unbelief. And because of their unbelief, they could not see Him. And they could not understand Him. And how many times in our lives do we say, God, why? 
Why are you doing this? Why have you allowed this to happen? Now, those are the three facts I see in regards to the warning signs, but let me give you your answers very quickly in verse 7. In verse 7, he says, wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, and you've got two words that we put together today. There's your answer. Today. Because here's what Satan does. Satan moves into your life, and, here's, and, I, and I know this happens right now in this service. As we've looked at this, at this ability to be tempting God and we're guilty of the lust, the complaining, the murmuring. The heart matters. There is somebody here this morning that God gave you a promise so many years ago, and you just didn't believe him. Probably because times got tough. Things got hard. And you presumed upon God, and you made your own move. Or you threw your hands up and said, there's no way. We are no different than the nation of Israel and he warns us. But here's what Satan does. Instead of whispering in your ear the phrase, today, he says, yesterday. You remember what you did? You remember how you blew it? You royally messed it up. There's no way that God could do that for you because where you came from. There's no way that that could happen seeing what you did. See, that's what the devil does. Satan brings and says, not today, yesterday. Or he'll try it the other way. Tomorrow. Don't worry about that today. You can do it tomorrow. It's not, it's not time. Just enjoy life and don't worry about those things and just enjoy the pleasures and just one more day. Just one more day. Take care of it tomorrow. Next, next year, it can be your New Year's resolution. Don't just ignore the preacher today. He doesn't know what he's talking about. You've got all of, well, do you have all of 2024? I don't know. So Satan doesn't want you to deal with today. That's why God says, Today, harden not your hearts. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to deal with it. Don't push, look back at yesterday and don't look at tomorrow. Deal with today. If the Holy Spirit this morning moved into the service, and He did, and He stirred a heart and He softened you, and He looks at you and says, now what about this? Are you going to trust me with that? Are you going to trust me that I can provide a spouse for you without you having to look? Are you going to trust that I can give you the job where you need to be without you having to fix it? Are you going to just throw your hands up and say, I quit. There's no possible way that I could do it. Are you going to trust me today? You know what this is? Today is surrender. Today is surrender. And today is hope. It's today. Don't walk out those red doors with unbelief. Walk out of those doors with hope of who God is. Harden not your hearts. Okay, so you push God's buttons. You tempted Him. What a fitting song. About nothing but the blood. If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just. 
to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm not saying this morning that you've done something grievous. Maybe it is just not that you haven't trusted God. And that is a big deal. Maybe you've taken a step and said, I'll, I'll do this and, and maybe God will jump in with it. And you presumed upon God because why? You didn't trust him. You could get up here in just a minute and you could come to an altar and nobody in this room knows what you've dealt with or what is going on with you or your past life of yesterday or what holds for tomorrow, but you ought to come and just deal with today. Today. Let's pray. Father, we sure thank you for the time this morning. We look forward to a new year. Should you tarry, uh, should things go as we would expect them to do, just another year to fly by, may our lives not be, and our hearts not be hardened. May our hearts be drawn towards you. Will we not tempt you? Might we learn today to, to recognize some warning signs? Maybe there's been some complaining. Maybe there's been murmuring. Maybe there's been an element we just haven't put our faith in you. Today we could come to an altar and surrender and grab back a hold of the hope and not harden our hearts as the children of Israel did, but expect and anticipate the answer that God only you can do and you can give. Father, may you take this time of invitation and help the believers here. If there's somebody here today that's never trusted Christ as their Savior, may they put their faith in Him and become your child. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you would. This is Pastor Jeremy Wilson. We sure appreciate you listening uh, to this service today. We hope that it was a help to you and uh, your endeavors to study and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. If we can be a help, be sure to check us out online at hbcpicune.com.